Welcome back for episode 43. We have a lot of exciting updates for things happening here at Roshcast. Most importantly, we have a new addition to the Roshcast family. I'm sorry, is that a baby crying? Uh, that was definitely a baby. That was actually Graham, and he's our newest addition to the Roshcast team, and that was his podcast debut. Ooh, this is awkward. I thought we were going to introduce Mega as our new addition. Hi. So Roshcast listeners, that was Mega. And with Graham entering my life and a new upcoming fellowship in EMS at UPMC, after much deliberation, I've decided to leave Roshcast behind and pass it on to Mega. Working on this podcast has been one of the most fun parts of my residency experience. From when Nachi came up with the idea and approached me to co-host with him straight through to the launch of episode 42 right before the in-service, I've learned a ton making this podcast and reviewing core content. I also owe additional thanks to all the folks at Rosh Review who work diligently on so many different aspects of the question bank and behind the scenes to make this podcast what it's become today. We're at a deep loss here. There's literally no one who can ever replace you and the hard work that you've done to build Roshcast and make it the success that it has been. With that being said, Mega Rajpal, a rising PGY4 at Mount Sinai in New York, is going to act as your replacement as we continue to produce high-quality emergency medicine board review and cover core content for all of our listeners. Hi guys, definitely going to miss Jeff, but I'm super excited to be joining Roshcast and taking over for him. I have some big shoes to fill, but I have Nachi to help me through the process. I've been a longtime listener and fan. The reason I wanted to join Roshcast is so I can spend more time with Nachi. Just kidding, slightly. I can't wait to be a part of this amazing board review podcast. Okay, well we're already a couple of minutes in, and I bet our listeners are tired of updates and dying for some core content review. We have one more announcement, but that'll have to wait till the end of this episode. Let's head over to the Rosh blog and kick off this episode with a rapid review. How about epiglottitis? Nachi, what is a typical presentation for epiglottitis? For epiglottitis, the patient will usually have a rapid onset fever and dysphagia. On exam, they could be leaning forward, drooling, and even have inspiratory strider. And what's the typical radiographic finding for epiglottitis? You're thinking of the thumbprint sign here, which is seen on a lateral neck film. Do you remember the most common associated bacteria? Yeah, that would be H. influenza and streptococcus. Lastly, what should you be thinking for treatment in these cases? Well, airway management is a crucial piece here. They may need to be intubated immediately. But don't forget to start the patient on antibiotics to treat for the common pathogens also. Alright, let's get started with our first question. A 52-year-old woman comes in and you're concerned about a pulmonary embolism. What is the most common vital sign abnormality that you would expect to see? Is it A, fever, B, hypoxia, C, tachycardia, or D, tachypnea? While tachycardia is a common vital sign abnormality and the most common EKG abnormality, choice D, tachypnea, is definitely the most common presenting vital sign abnormality. That's right. Tachypnea is the most common presenting vital sign abnormality. Fever, choice A, can occur, but if it does, it's usually a low-grade fever, below 101.5. Hypoxia, choice B, is commonly seen in large PEs, but it isn't frequently seen in smaller ones. And tachycardia, choice C, as you said, is the most common EKG finding for pulmonary embolism. Do you remember what is the most common presenting symptom in a patient with a pulmonary embolism? The answer to that is dyspnea, at rest or exertion. All right, Nachi, your turn. A 72-year-old diabetic man presents with progressively worsening right knee pain, redness, and swelling. Joint aspiration reveals negative birefringent crystals. The patient is allergic to NSAIDs, so colchicine is prescribed. Which side effect limits its usefulness due to a narrow therapeutic window? Is it A, headache, B, nausea and vomiting, C, rash, or D, sore throat? 
The most common serious adverse effect of colchicine is GI problems, such as nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and this is experienced by more than 10% of patients, so the correct answer here is choice B. That's right, and this patient clearly has gout as evident by the negatively birefringent monosodium uride crystals that are seen on joint aspiration. Remember that NSAIDs are the first-line treatment for gout, but this patient is allergic to NSAIDs, so he was started on colchicine. Do you recall what is the most common site affected by gout? The most common site for gout is the first metatarsophalangeal joint, or the MTP joint. It's also important to remember that low-dose aspirin is potentially harmful in patients with gout, as it can increase uric acid levels. While we're talking about colchicine, can you give us a short review of colchicine toxicity? Sure. Colchicine, which is a naturally occurring plant alkaloid found in autumn crocus and glory lily, works by inhibiting microtubule formation. In the first 2 to 24 hours of colchicine toxicity, patients present with severe GI distress. Then, over the next 2 to 7 days, patients can develop bone marrow suppression, rhabdomyolysis, renal failure, metabolic acidosis, and even ARDS. After 7 days, patients may show rebound leukocytosis and transient alopecia. We actually covered colchicine toxicity back in episode 9, so head back there for another review. Wow, lots to remember there. Getting back to gout, is it easy to distinguish gout from septic arthritis? Not clinically, but definitely by joint aspiration. In crystal-induced arthritis, the white blood cell count is typically 2,000 to 50,000, and in septic arthritis, it's greater than 50,000. Final related question before moving on. What type of crystals do you see in pseudogout? Joint aspiration in pseudogout demonstrates calcium pyrophosphate crystals, which are positively birefringent. As you're wrapping up with this patient, the triage nurse calls you to evaluate a patient for a stroke. It's a 68-year-old man who presents with a left-sided facial droop. Which of the following findings is suggestive of a central process? Is it A, hyperacusis of the left ear, B, inability to close the left eye completely, C, loss of taste sensation, or D, preserved ability to raise the eyebrows? Well, this is a familiar scenario. D, preserved ability to raise the eyebrows suggests a central process. This is because the forehead receives bilateral upper motor neuron innervation, so central stroke will spare the forehead and allow the patient to raise both eyebrows. Other features that suggest a central process include involvement of other cranial nerves and expressive or receptive aphasia. While talking about central and peripheral processes, how does Bell's palsy present? So Bell's palsy is a peripheral process affecting cranial nerve 7, and symptoms include ipsilateral facial weakness, drooling, loss of taste sensation, and ipsilateral tongue numbness. Note that in Bell's palsy, the ipsilateral eyelid often has incomplete closure and the forehead is affected. Great. Let's also quickly review the treatment for Bell's palsy. Treat with steroids and antivirals. Randomized control trials have shown a benefit of combination therapy over steroids alone. The combination has also been associated with less sequelae of Bell's palsy. Of note, no significant increase was seen in adverse events when adding antivirals to steroid therapy. And importantly, don't forget the treatment for the eye. The paralysis puts the patient at increased risk for corneal abrasions and keratitis. Prescribe an eye patch and artificial tears to prevent corneal drying. Lastly, do you remember what Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is? Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is presence of a cranial nerve 7 palsy with herpes zoster lesions on the cheek or ear. Let's move slightly down the face to the cervical spine for the next question. Strong transition there, Mega. (laughs) Which of the following is considered a stable cervical spine injury? Is it A, bilateral facet dislocation, B, clay shoveler's fracture, C, hangman fracture, D, teardrop fracture? The answer here is choice B, clay shoveler's fracture. 
Clay Shovelers is an avulsion of the spinous process of C6 or C7. The injury got its name from clay shovelers who were shoveling heavy clay that caused them to abruptly flex their neck while contracting their lower neck muscles. Now, most cases are due to direct trauma to the posterior neck. Other stable injuries include a unilateral facet dislocation and a type 1 odontoid fracture. Type 1 odontoid fracture. Stable. I seem to remember learning that in a prior Rashkas episode. Yeah, we covered that back in episode 40, so head there for another review. Spinal fractures are always so hard to remember, and they seem to appear so frequently on exams. Is there a way to remember which ones are unstable? Actually, there is. The mnemonic to remember here for unstable cervical spine fractures is Jefferson bit off a hangman's thumb, which stands for Jefferson burst fracture, bilateral facet dislocation, odontoid type 2 and type 3 fractures, any fracture with a dislocation, hangman's fracture, and teardrop fracture. Thanks, that is definitely a helpful one. Jefferson bit off a hangman's thumb. Okay, you're up next, and it's a board favorite, so pay close attention. There was a bombing at the airport, and EMS brought in a 28-year-old man who has bilateral tympanic membrane ruptures. Chest x-ray shows bilateral pulmonary contusions. Which category of blast injury is this patient's presentation most consistent with? Is it A, primary, B, secondary, C, tertiary, or D, quaternary? These are not hard questions if you just put in the time to remember the types of blast injury. The answer here is choice A, primary blast injury. That's right, and it sounds like you already memorized these differences, but let's discuss the categories of blast injuries for our listeners. Sure. Primary blast injury occurs after direct effect from blast shockwaves and may present with tympanic membrane rupture, blast lung, ocular injuries, or concussions. Secondary blast injuries occur due to the impact of fragments from an exploding device and may present with penetrating trauma, amputations, and lacerations. In tertiary injury, the blast wave propels the body into objects, and this can present with crush injuries or blunt trauma. Quaternary injury is caused by environmental contamination from a device and can present with burns and inhalation injuries. Quinary blast injuries cause bodily absorption of device additives. Here, you might see a hypermetabolic state. A lot to remember there on a topic that we just don't see that often clinically, but it's still really important to know. If the explosion happened in a confined space with an associated fire, Remember to include carbon monoxide toxicity and cyanide poisoning in your differential as well. Also, important to know is that any patient who has been exposed to blast waves should receive a chest x-ray. All right, Naji, you're up for the last question of the episode. A 19-year-old man presents with eye pain, photophobia, and blurry vision in his left eye after being punched there two days ago. On exam, you note consensual photophobia. What is the appropriate treatment? Is it A, homotropine drops, B, timolol, C. Topical ketorolac drops. D. Topical vasoconstrictor. So this patient has traumatic iritis, which is an inflammation inside the eye that occurs after blunt trauma. Primary treatment here consists of cycloplegics, like homotropine, which paralyzes the ciliary body. So the correct answer here would be choice A. Topical steroids are also used to reduce inflammation in iritis, but only after infection has been ruled out. For the other answer choices... Timolol choice B is used in acute angle glaucoma to decrease aqueous humor production. Topical ketorolac drops choice C can be useful for pain management in other ocular conditions, but not really in traumatic iritis. Topical vasoconstrictors choice D, they're helpful in patients with scleritis. Well, that's it for new content. Let's close this episode out with a rapid review. Tachypnea is the most common presenting vital sign abnormality in PE, while dyspnea at rest or exertion is the most common presenting symptom. 
joint aspiration in gout demonstrates negatively birefringent monosodium urate crystals. NSAIDs are the first-line treatment. Colchicine can cause severe GI symptoms in more than 10% of patients. When deciding on a central versus peripheral etiology for facial paralysis, preserved ability to raise the ipsilateral eyebrow or close the ipsilateral eye is more concerning for a central lesion than a peripheral lesion. Clay Shuffler's fracture is a stable avulsion fracture of the spinous process of C6, C7. Jefferson burst fracture, bilateral facet dislocation, odontoid type 2 and type 3 fractures, any fracture with a dislocation, hangman's fracture, and teardrop fracture are all unstable cervical spine fractures. Primary blast injury occurs from direct effect from blast shock waves. Secondary occurs from the impact of fragments due to exploding devices. In tertiary blast injury, the blast wave propels the body into objects. In quaternary injury, there is environmental contamination from the device. And in quinary blast injuries, there is bodily absorption of device additives. Traumatic iritis is treated using cycloplegics like homotropine and topical steroids. So that wraps up episode 43. A big thanks and welcome to Mega on our first episode of Roshcast. We do have one final announcement for this episode. Rosh Review is starting up a new podcast that we encourage you all to listen to, especially our physician assistant listeners. It's called The PA Way and is hosted by Allison Callahan. Find it on iTunes. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help you prepare for the boards and the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast. And you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review.